We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're journeying through our series, Oh, That Verse Means That, and taking a closer look at some popular Bible passages we've understood a certain way, or we've been taught mean one thing, but are discovering they really mean something very different. Today is session four. If you missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search for local program podcasts, then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, I hope this statement is not becoming a broken record, because the Bible really does have a story to tell us, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out, screaming out, to tell us its story. But we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as every average Christian, tend to do what? We tend to make even force the Bible to tell our story. Whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. Well, today's session four is called, Be Still and Still Be Wrong? I'll bet you know where I'm going with this one, friends. Yep, Psalm 46.10. Oh no, not Psalm 46.10. One author calls it one of the most often quoted out of context verses of all time. Personally, I believe this is so because we always seem to quote the first half of this verse, but leave out the second half. Maybe the second half doesn't suit us. Plaques and cards abound with just Psalm 4610A on them. I've even seen framed art with this half of Psalm 4610 in people's homes. Well, friends, would you believe that the backstory to this psalm actually begins in what we call the superscription, a parenthetical statement that appears in our English Bibles right after the title of this psalm and right before our verse 1 begins. But interestingly, this superscription is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible, the bare-bones version saying, For the leader of the Korahites on Alamoth, a song. 
This leader just might mean a reference to the song leader, choir director, even possibly the band leader. In First Chronicles 16, it seems that David commissioned Asaph and his kinsmen to give praise to Yahweh. And in addition, several band members brought trumpets, cymbals, and instruments for the songs of God, as verses 41 and 42 tell us. Now, this word leader, friends, in the Hebrew language carries with it these meanings. Leader, overseer, director, as in choir director, plus supervisor, as well as continual, which may add this was some kind of ongoing position. And while a term familiar to many of us, worship leader, is a more modern invention, it may find its roots in the Old Testament Hebrew way of worshiping. In generations before us, the terms choir master and musical director were the ongoing categories. And friends, this brief phrase of the Korahites may also properly be translated sons of Korah, which led me to wonder just who were these sons of Korah, and what might this psalm of theirs actually be teaching us? What was its intent? And perhaps once and for all, we'll find out if we're drawing the right conclusion about the first half of Psalm 4610, which says, Be still and know that I am God. Well, friends, the backstory of these sons of Korah begins with the Israelites of Moses' time, after they left Egypt and journeyed through the wilderness. God set aside the Levites for full-time service to him, their role being the care of all the furnishings of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, per Numbers chapters 3-5. through five. Only the descendants of Aaron were allowed to serve as priests. The three sons of Levi were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. The grandson of Kohath was Korah. Korah ended up joining a band of malcontents from the tribe of Reuben, some 250 men, and challenged the right of Moses and Aaron to exalt themselves over the congregation of Israel. This is seen in Numbers 16. Well, friends, Moses eventually gets wind of this and consults God directly for what to do. Remember now what the writer of the letter of Hebrews says? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this New Testament Greek word terrifying is where we get our English word phobia. It can also mean dreadful. So, friends, tell me what word you'd use to describe what God does next. Moses summoned the rebels to stand before God and burn incense. Then God warned the rest of the Israelites to stand clear of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, their households and the other malcontents. Numbers 16, 28-35 then provide these details. Moses then said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural and death, death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and, and the earth opens and its mouth swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive to their realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt." As soon as he, Moses, finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, and their possessions, they went down alive into the realm of the dead, with everything they owned. 
The earth closed over them, and they perished, and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too! And fire came out from the Lord, and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Perhaps, friends, the author of Hebrews had this in mind, because shortly after the verse we shared earlier, in 1229, he says, Our God is a consuming fire. I'll bet you haven't seen this scripture verse framed and hanging on the wall of a friend's house, have you? I certainly haven't. Well, this terrifying and dreadful event certainly marked the end of Korah, didn't it? But it's interesting, friends, that we discover that Korah's sons, who were likely too young to understand their father's rebellious act, were spared, as Numbers 26, 9 through 11 tell us. Evidently, God still had a plan for the lineage of Korah. After seven successive generations, the prophet Samuel arose from the line of Korah. And guess what? The future Korahites became doorkeepers and custodians for the tabernacle, as First Chronicles nine nineteen through twenty one tell us. And further, one group of Korahites joined King David in various military exploits and won the reputation of being expert warriors. But friends, the most remarkable thing to note about the sons of Korah is that during this reign of King David, they became great leaders in the choral and orchestral music in the tabernacle. Three individuals rise to prominence in Israel's worship under David. Heman gains importance as a singer, along with Asaph, a Gershonite, and Ethan, a Merarite. These three played an important role in the thanksgiving services and pageantry where the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. Through these men... David formed an elaborate organization for song, instrumental music, and prophesying. Their talents are seen in 11 psalms in the Hebrew Psalter, our book of psalms, which are attributed to these sons of Korah. Psalms 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. Some of the most beloved and well-known verses of Scripture from the Psalms are from the sons of Korah, such as Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O God! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, Yahweh! Friends, I wonder if these poet-musicians who penned these and other inspiring and beautiful lyrics remembered their less noble beginnings when their forefathers rebelled against God. It would seem to me that a genuine spirit of humility developed over time in Korah's children. It might benefit us, friends, to pause here and reflect on our own rebellious beginnings that resulted from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and the fallen state from which we now have been redeemed through the grace of God, manifested in Jesus Christ, our Messiah and Savior. These 11 psalms written by the sons of Korah are worth meditating on, for they truly stand as a memorial to the grace of God at work. Can you join me in saying amen to that? 
Well, friends, after reading, studying, and analyzing Psalm 46, verse 10, I've come to believe that Psalm 46's main theme is a combination of rebellion and surrender. This psalm opens by describing two fearful things. First, weather, and second, war. Now, aren't these the same two realities our world is facing right now? Think about some of our recent past weather challenges, such as hurricanes and even earthquakes, and then the threats of war that are rampant around the world. Aren't these fearful realities? So, friends, Psalm 46, verse 10, our verse under examination, is cast in the midst of these two primary fears. In fact, war functions like bookends or brackets immediately before and after verse 10 in verses 9 and 11 in our English Bibles, the Hebrew Bible being numbered slightly differently due to the fact that the superscription we talked about earlier is counted as verse 1. So our verse 10 is their verse 11. And friends, let's please not forget the overview theme of this entire psalm, which forms the backdrop of verse 10, which many of us tend to quote so cavalierly. One author I consulted remarked, I have lost count of the incidental references I have encountered in books or even entire devotions that have used this text to encourage the reader to withdraw from the hubbub of life and have a personal quiet time with God, maybe go on a retreat or spend a few days in silence in a monastery, take a long walk into nature and find a quiet place to reflect on God, recharge your batteries." So, friends, is this what the psalmist is really trying to communicate to his readers, his audience, and ultimately us? Well, let's once again put on Berean hats, and even our Inspector Clouseau's private eye hat, and grab his magnifying glass, and the fine-tooth comb we all brought with us, and let's search the scriptures to see if these things are so... First off, let's review that in the Hebrew Bible, the superscription, our subtitle in our English Bibles, is actually verse 1, so our Psalm 46.10 is their Psalm 46.11. This difference may crop up in resources we consult, as they may quote from the Hebrew Bible, so I don't want us to get confused in the process. Second, let's notice that Psalm 46 begins with a general truth statement about God himself. Friends, verse 1 is worth memorizing. It says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Amen. Then from verses 2 through verse 5, the psalmist introduces us to the first threat, as I mentioned earlier, the threat of weather conditions. And from verses 6 through 11, the psalmist introduces us to the second threat, the threat of war conditions. Evidently, friends, at this time in the psalmist's life, God is the protector over Jerusalem and its key river, hinted at in verse 4, possibly referring to the Jordan River. At this time, both Jerusalem and the Jordan River are impervious to extreme weather disruptions and war conditions that might threaten to overtake them. And third, let's notice that with the exception of our key verse, verse 10 in our English Bible, the psalmist himself is doing all the talking. Yet, it appears that God himself breaks through in verse 10, where I is used three times. I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. 
So, as good detectives, let's now re-examine the bracketed verses, verses 9 and 11, where two war images occur. And we lose this connection when we choose to rattle off or quote only the first half of verse 10, because the second half of verse 10 helps contextualize the meaning of the first half. Let's recognize once and for all that the immediate context of verse 10 and the extended context, verses 2 through 11, highlight the heathen nations and kingdoms that war against Israel. What's hinted at here, friends, is a picture of two warring nations fighting until someone pulls them apart and forces them to drop their weapons. So, for both the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God, being still, as verse 10 is translated in our English Bibles, meant, in its military context, to actually cease fighting a battle they cannot win. This, then, friends, is not a personal takeaway for individual believers to take a chill pill or have a chill day and calm down. You see, friends, sadly, this half of one verse is so often ripped from its context to declare something that's certainly not intended in the passage itself. Many well-meaning Christ followers, unfortunately, make this half passage tell their story instead of telling the Bible's story. They and we, too many times, use this text as a consolation in times of worry and frustration and honestly think God is saying to us, relax, I got this. But friends, relaxing or calming down is not what God is saying here at all. We've even invented a buzz phrase to cover our own tracks, our own feelings. You know it well. You've heard it said and probably said it yourself. Let go and let God. And even though this phrase, letting go of it, is another translation option here, we must be careful to identify just what it is we're to let go of. The Hebrew meaning of our be still also carries with it these additional ideas. Cease striving, desist, loosen one's grip, stop fighting, drop your defenses, and release. You see, friends, what Psalm 46 is instructing us to let go of, to relinquish, is control. Now, let's be honest here, okay? I think I can speak for all of us when I say that one of the things that we want more than anything else is to have control over our lives and circumstances, because having control enables us to have a semblance of feeling secure and our lives feeling somewhat ordered, right? But we must cease striving to be in control and give God permission to be in control of our lives, come what may. Friends, we all know how hard it is to tell God, you are king of my life, come what may. Do we want to remain master of our universe, or do we want God to be master of our universe? You see, when God truly becomes master of our universe, we must relinquish predictability. And, whoa, that's really hard, isn't it? Someone once aptly said, There are two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, Your will be done, and those to whom God says, Your will be done. This is actually pictured in Romans chapter 1, if you wish to consult it, where Paul says several times, God gave them over, listing several things humans wanted over what God wanted. 
friends, isn't it time we finally fall on our knees and our faces and acknowledge God as our Ribbono Shel Olam, our master of the universe? Friends, isn't it time we practically in our daily lives recognize the rescuing power of God? Isn't it time we cease striving on our own? Isn't it time we desist? Isn't it time we loosen our grip to truly demonstrate we are giving up trusting in ourselves and our own designs? Isn't it time we see and experience the glory of God in His all-sufficiency? So says John J. Parsons, a Messianic Jew I consulted as a resource for a few of these truths I'm sharing with you today. Psalm 46 reiterates the fact that the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, is in complete control of the world, in spite of what it looks like to our human eyes and senses. I believe that the Apostle Paul voiced this same idea when he said to the Corinthians, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Sight being a reference to our human senses. Friends, walking by faith can and should deliver us from our temporal fears. We can and should declare with the psalmist of Psalm 46 that even though the present world is being shaken, even though the nations around us are raging and the kingdoms of men are teetering, we will not fear because we know that God is our present help in times of trouble, as verse 1 reminds us and assures us. Amen. Friends, if you're in need of a quick spiritual B12 shot, read verses 1 and 11. They're wonderful bookends which say, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, or as the Hebrew can read, a secure stronghold, a high tower, an unassailable fortification. As a favorite psalm of many, especially verse 10, let me assure you, friends, that this expression, be still, does not refer to inner prayer or contemplation. It does not refer to meditating on a beautiful sunset and realizing that God made it. It is not a reference to God's therapy for advising stress heads or workaholics to slow down or calm down. These things may all be worthwhile endeavors, but friends, it's not what Psalm 4610 is trying to tell us. Though we are thousands of years forward in time to the original hearers of Psalm 46, we must be faithful to apply the truth embedded in this verse that is substantiated by its context. And we must honor and respect the Holy Spirit, the inspirer of our Bible text, and be willing to do the hard work of searching out the correct and contextual meaning, and not just cavalierly speculate as to what a text might mean. Even for us, as I said, thousands of years later, the original meaning and interpretation still holds true. When we step into Hebrew sandals and hear with Hebrew ears, be still tells us to stop striving, stop fighting, stop being an activist, and stop thinking and believing that our own efforts will somehow bring security, order, or advancement to our earthly lives. It really becomes a great day for the Christ 
follower when we come to terms with the idea that our strength is but weakness in God's eyes, and in a military violent world, war, politics, finances, even achievements will not bring us true peace, true security. Only in our Judeo-Christian God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, can real peace and security be found. His grace is sufficient for us." We can grab the gist of Be Still by imagining a school teacher returning to the classroom full of kids who've been fighting and messed up the room. So the teacher exclaims, Shut up! Sit down and know that I am the teacher! The gist being, settle down and stop all the striving and fighting, leaving God out of the equation, and realize that God is in charge! Friends, please don't think that what I've been sharing is just my own fanciful interpretation. Some respected Jewish and Messianic translations and study Bibles notes offer the same information. In the Jewish study Bible using the Jewish Publication Society's translation called the Tanakh, their text of Psalm 46.11, hour 10, says, Desist! Realize that I am God. I dominate the nations. I dominate the earth. And in the accompanying notes we read, in part, the extensive military language suggests to some that it may have been recited before a battle. In the complete Jewish study Bible, David H. Stern, Messianic Jew, translates Psalm 46.10, Desist and learn that I am God, supreme over the nations, supreme over the earth. In his commentary, he adds, God is a refuge for Israel from natural phenomena, from the nations of the world, and from both natural and national powers. So, friends, let's allow Psalm 46 to move us to exchange human control with divine control. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. And the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com under local program podcasts. And friends, A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. This program is not immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're in. So please consider financially helping keep A Word from the Word on the air. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 